You're listening to Zero to IPO. I'm Joshua Davis, the co-founder of Epic Magazine. And I'm Frederick Harris, Chief Operating Officer and co-founder of Okta. As you know, we're dealing with a global pandemic, and we're excited to bring you more episodes of Zero to IPO, but we had to figure out how to record in isolation. So if it sounds like we're all in different rooms, it's because we are. Now let's get on with our show. Today, we're joined by two incredible guests, Therese Tucker, who's the CEO and founder of Blackline, and Madison Maxey, the CEO and founder of Lumia. And we've got a whole lot to talk about. Therese, you founded Blackline in the early 2000s. And for our audience who doesn't know Blackline, you should. It is a cloud-based software platform that delivers accounting and finance functionality to companies. It is a publicly traded company and has over a 1,000 employees, and as of today, which is mid-April, is currently valued at over $3 billion. So we're not messing around, is what I'm saying. And then our other guest, uh, Maddie, uh, is the CEO and founder of Lumia, which makes a very interesting series of products that are classified as e-textiles, which are soft-circuit systems that can heat fabrics or control fabrics in all sorts of innovative, interesting ways. For instance, imagine a car seat that could sense your dropping body temperature and then automatically start to warm you up instead of you having to mess around with the controls. Josh, Josh, your introduction was great, but you're talking about car seats that heat up. I mean, how often is your body temperature really dropping? How about ski jackets? I know that Maddie makes ski jackets that heat up. Talk about something that is valuable. I am in a car right now. I am in a car right now. I would like a car You don't look very cold. You don't look very cold. You don't look very cold at all. But maybe it could ventilate. Maybe it could ventilate. Why? Yeah, it could. It could. I'm just saying, why not use an example that everyone will understand? Like a ski jacket that when you're cold warms you up. Yeah, I think car seats are better. I think car seats are better. Anyway, so I'm sorry Sorry to interrupt. It just (laughs) seems so obvious. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Thank you for the the kind introduction. And, you know, I I was so excited to speak with Teresa and Freddie today because you both have big uh, B2B businesses. And I find that B2B sales is something that can be really hard to hire for and really hard to learn. You know, a lot of my background is on the product side. So, you know, we can make prototypes, we can get things out there, we can handle inbound. But when it comes to having a really strong sales strategy and including hiring a sales force, you know, it's something that's been been tricky over time. So I wanted to have this conversation to get as much advice as possible about how you went about finding your first sales hires, what you looked for, and any challenges you had along the way. I love it. Awesome. This is my favorite kind of conversation. I have so many ideas. Maddie, let me ask you a question. So maybe can you describe in like a minute um, so that we can maybe give you also some specific advice in your case? So how many, um, how many customers do you have today? What does the enterprise sales uh, cycle look like? How long does it take? What's the average customer take? Do you have any sales reps? Like, can you paint a little bit of the picture? Because maybe then we can actually give you some specific, like actionable things out of this. So our team is very small. Um, we're four people. And we just brought on uh, two people, one to help kind of coach us in sales, and then another person to help execute in sales. But there's not somebody who's full-time. We wanted to kind of test and see, you know, what we liked and start to get a handle of this situation. We have about six customers or so. Uh, We generally sell to large businesses. 
And especially because the product that we make is very hardware focused. It was really around the beginning of last year when we were able to get to market in a meaningful way. You know, when we were able to have samples that were like, this is what you could get versus like, imagine what you could get, which is a really different process. So last year we signed on a few Fortune 1000 companies. Um, this year we're hoping to bring on a few more. But as you mentioned, Eski, who's our CTO, her and I do most of the sales calls. And at some point for these really high touch sales processes, it really doesn't scale very well. So I think that in the past, we felt a little burnt by certain sales hires. And so we're trying to think, okay, how do we re-strategize and think about this differently in order to be able to hire better? Um, because I, I think for the company to grow, we definitely have to have to have someone. Well, let's turn to our expert, Therese Tucker. What's your advice to Maddie? Maddie, I, like you, don't come from a sales background. And... I definitely made plenty of mistakes in the early days. And I have to tell you that the first really capable sales leader that I hired made the difference between the company succeeding and failing. Okay. But before I found him, I definitely went through a number of um, different attempts at trying to find the right people. And it's difficult because... People that are in sales uh, can talk a good game, right? Just about all of them. And that may or may not translate in terms of actual performance. Now, with that, you have to think about the kind of sales culture that you want. I did not want a sales culture like some of the other software companies that I'd worked at. You know, there are certain software companies that have reputations for uh, salespeople that basically are just brawlers. They grab the prospect and they throw them on the ground and stomp on them until they get a deal. I've had a few of those. Okay. Again, that's not something that necessarily comes through in an interview because everybody's on their best behavior in an interview. So you're going to want to look for proven success. You're going to want to look for culture alignment in terms of the culture that you're setting for your company. For your early salespeople, I would suggest that you do options. A really good salesperson can work anywhere. I mean, they really can. They, they, they've got all the options in the world, right? I mean, in uh, actual, you know, they can go anywhere. And so why would they come to a small company that may or may not succeed in a new market. So what is the carrot to get somebody who's really good? And typically that would be stock options that gives them tremendous upside. Freddie, wanna add to that? One thing I would say that was very hard for us um, when we started was uh, if you've never hired an awesome sales leader, you don't know what they look like. And so, you might be interviewing these people and they might seem great, but you actually don't know necessarily what the characteristics are that you're looking for. You know, things change. Like Therese, you know, we've spent a while building Okta at this point. You know, we have hundreds of quota carrying account executives. It's a very different program. But when we started hiring our first sales leaders, I actually found that one of the most valuable things was getting outside help in those interviews. And that's actually something that I have now been asked a number of times with the uh, enterprise software founders who I help, they'll say, hey, 
would you mind being, you know, the last interview for a first vice president of sales that I'm going to do? And I say, yeah, sure, of course, because now at this point, I've done it a hundred times. When you're looking for these kinds of folks, it's good to think about what the time horizon is that you want. We've been, we're just wrapping up our 11th year at Okta. And of the first 10 employees, one of those first 10 is still with us. The other nine are no longer with us for various reasons. They left or they wanted a different job or they moved. Or Now that employee number four, Brian Hansen, our vice president of design, has gone from an individual contributor to running a giant group. There are definitely people who are able to do that in the lifetime of a company. We were two people. He was employee number four. Today we have thousands of employees around the world. So you also want to think about, hey, this is not necessarily the sales leader that I'm looking to take the company public. This is the sales leader who I need to be successful for the next 24 months. My first really successful sales leader was an incredible coach. When he had a salesperson that was struggling, he would essentially get alongside, do every sales call, you know, take them under wing, help them amazingly, unbelievably great until you realize that he essentially ignored everybody else while he was coaching this single person and that that approach as you got bigger is not scalable. So different sales leaders for different times, you tend to outgrow certain sets of capabilities over time. Really important to recognize that. Then the one other thing I wanted to touch on is prior to hiring a sales leader, you typically hire a salesperson. I started with one salesperson and he was a guy who spoke a great game. Here's the struggle. Sales takes time, right? So somebody has to come in. They have to learn what they're doing. They have to develop a pitch. They have to do reach outs. They have to start cold calling. They've got to find prospects. Then they've got to get them through a sales process. So in that entire time, you're paying them this very large base salary. And so it's difficult to evaluate if you're getting your money's worth. For the first six to nine months. So the first salesperson that I hired basically talked a great game, did nothing, um, turned out was horribly rude to a number of prospects. I mean, I paid him 120000 for almost a year. And I then fired him. He turned around and sued the company for age discrimination. He never sold a thing. And in California, that's um, most employees have more rights than employers. So a couple of things that I wish that I had done beforehand. I wish that I'd had an employment contract in place. I wish that I had um, had potentially clawback rather than paying an enormous base salary. Maybe you pay a small base salary and then you pay on future commissions. I wish that I had done a better job of documenting my expectations up front in terms of milestones. Freddie, do you have any thoughts on that? One thing about sales that I think is very important is it's not so much what you want to sell, it's what the other person wants to buy. So there's two kinds of salespeople. There's what I like to call the alligator salesperson and the fennec fox salesperson. If you don't know what a fennec fox is, you can Google it. 
It has a very small mouth and really large ears. And as we know, the alligator has a very big mouth and very small ears. So if you go on there and you just start talking a lot, you talk, 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 you're actually not going to hear what the buyer, the potential buyer wants to tell you. But if you go in there and you have a small mouth and big ears, you can do a lot of active listening and you can say, oh, what I have to sell is this, but they're actually looking for something that's going to solve a slightly different problem. I can help them with that. So let me explain to them how I can help them with that problem as opposed to coming in and saying, we solve these three things. And they say, well, we don't have those three problems. And you're like, oh, okay, well, now I'm kind of stuck. I think that's something that I find a little tricky in this puzzle of finding a really good salesperson is that I've heard things like when you find the right person, it can really improve your business. It makes a big difference on the bottom line. But somebody who's really talented, you know, uh, as you said, why do they want to work with us? Not that I don't think we're great, but we can't offer them the best salary. We can't offer them the most prestige. So what exactly are they getting? And options are a great way to go. But I was wondering, um, Therese, what was your experience like with hiring that sales leader who you said kind of changed the trajectory of the company? Like, how did you find them? And when did you know that it was a good fit? My first sales leader actually came out of Oracle, and he was an accountant by training. He actually did a presentation for us at a trade show. And afterwards, I approached him and said, you're, you're not a big company guy. You should come work for Blackline. He took about three months to make a decision. In fact, we used to laugh about it. He would come and sit in our offices and like just watch everything. That is not a normal interview process. I didn't know him well. He didn't know us. We were learning about each other. We essentially had him camp out there for a couple of months and he started helping with things. So by the time that he ultimately joined the company, I had a ton of confidence that he could actually perform. And he's the reason that the company was successful. Wow. From what point, from when you hired him, were you starting to see a change in, in the bottom line for your company? You know, actually, the scary thing that he did when I officially hired him was he went out the following week and hired three salespeople at 120000 a year. And I almost died on the spot because we were still bootstrapped back then. He told me that, and I know my face probably went white. And he was like, but wait, that's, that's what you hired me for. And I'm like, I know I just wasn't quite ready from a wallet perspective to handle. And he's like, what should I do? And I'm like, all right, let's, let's do it. Let's, I'll make it work on my end, you know. Then he hired very well. Uh, let's see, two of those salespeople are still at Blackline today. One of them ended up moving back to his native country and everything else, and we still have a great relationship with him. So, I mean, he hired extraordinarily well. It was an act of faith on my part to not just die on the spot when he uh, hired three people. I thought, you know, in a month he would hire one and like two months later, three months later, after they closed some deals, he'd hire another one. No, he went all out immediately. Wow. And it was a great decision. 
it just cost me about three months worth of sleep. Therese, how did you know to do that? I mean, this is why you're in the position you're in. I don't think I would make that decision. I would be like, no, let's go slow. We're a small company. We don't have, you know, we're going to burn through our resources. One of the things that I have done well throughout my career is that I know what I don't know. I come from a technology background. I don't know sales. I'm not good at marketing. So if you hire people who you confidently believe are better in their expert skills than you are, you've got to trust them. And that can be very scary. I mean, if you don't put your confidence in them and let them make the decision, then ultimately you're going to undermine them and they're going to leave. So if would I have done that? My God, no. But I said, this is my sales leader. I'm going to trust his skills. Let's do it. Yeah, a couple of things there. I mean, uh, so very tactically, um, I actually always recommend, it's funny enough, that uh, entrepreneurs hire uh, their first set of sales cohorts in groups of three. That you should always hire three salespeople, not just one. And the reason is because there's going to be, because people are individuals. So there's going to be some individuality about the person. So if you hire just one person, it sounds like Therese made the perfect hire. But in general, if you don't make that first perfect hire, you want to hire groups of three. And you want to do that because, first of all, you're going to get three different people. So you're going to learn a little bit as you go because you're going to, the whole thing is a learning process about what the right approach to sales is. And one person does it a little bit differently than the other. And one has a different philosophy than the other. And one has a different way of building relationships with, than the other one does. And so you're, that's the first thing. The second thing is, Sometimes you are going to end up with like the unfortunate situation Therese was telling us about with the salesperson who didn't sell anything for the whole year and left. Well, if you have three people there and that's only happening to one, you know that actually the issue is the person, not your sales process or your product or anything else. And then the final thing is salespeople are competitive. I always love to find ex-NCAA athletes are great salespeople. Why? Because they have a competitive nature in them because they tried to be a, a top athlete in a top performing approach to, to whatever they were doing in their formative years. And so if you put three of them together, they're going to compete to see who's the number one. They all want to be the number one. Therese said that she gives options to the best performing salespeople. They all want the options at the end of the year, right? So you know, that's why there is a classic thing that is done in sales that, that we do of sales club, where you send the top performing account executives every year, go to a nice destination for three days and their names are on a whiteboard so that everyone knows who they are. And then the top performing salesperson, you bring them on stage and you give them a Rolex or something where everyone says, oh, I want to be the top performing salesperson. I want to get the Rolex next year. And these are all these are all ideas. And you see them in movies like Glengarry Glen Ross. It's reality. I've seen it for the last 18 years since my first year at Salesforce.com, and it works. And so you always hire salespeople in little cohorts so they can really be competitive and they all want to be number one on the whiteboard. Wow. Freddie, that is the best advice. And, and by the way, when I brought in my uh, president, um, he came from NetSuite. We now have club within club. We have the super elite club where they do curated experiences in different locales around the world for only the top 10. So it's like the top 100%, Therese, go to sales club, but the top, 
the people who do 150% of their quota go to this super president's club. Is that right? Yes, yes that's right. Yeah. And how does that work on the rest of the sales force? I'm guessing people want to be in that. Desperately. Okay. Desperately. <laughs> and when we do, so for example, uh, this year's Club Within Club was um, a curated experience in Japan, which is on hold, by the way, around the Olympics and sumo wrestling and everything else. When they did the sales kickoff meeting, they set up their own dojo up at the front of the room with people serving sake and everything else. And only the club within the club members were able to sit there. Okay. <laughs> and the rest of the salespeople were just dying. They wanted that so badly. It's a, it's the, the competitive thing is real, Maddie. I mean, and we have also had a number of ex-athletes, um, ex-football players, pro football players, college athletes. Uh, we had one survivor contestant. Okay. Wow. <laughs> um, the competitive thing is enormous. And I had not heard the rule of three before. If I ever start another company, Freddie, I will absolutely do it that way. That's beautiful. I love it. Tell me how it goes. <laughs> Yeah, what I would also say is, you know, there's a big difference between when you're early on, uh, as in uh, Maddie's case here, and really doing a lot of discovery sales, which are founder-led, and when you really start to ramp the program up and getting 5, 10, and 25 salespeople, and then you want a machine, and you're dumping more gas on the fuel and all these kinds of things. So what we did, uh, in, in which in hindsight, probably one of the uh, better ideas I had earlier on in the company um, I had plenty of bad ideas that would take up many, many podcasts. But one of the ones that I happened to get lucky enough to come up with was we, when we had our first set of salespeople that were beyond founder-led sales, beyond just me and Todd going out there, when we hired a first couple uh, sales development reps so that we could start doing more leads, and then we hired our first couple inside salespeople um, who would sit really close to us so that we could do that active learning I actually didn't even do annual comp plans. I did, uh, I think, quarterly or six-month comp plans, and they were very simple ones. And basically, it was like, hey, you know, you had a, a, a fair, you know, a, a totally reasonable uh, base salary. Uh, you had you had options because you want to incent these people who are a little bit more risk taking and who are going to buy into the vision and the culture. But then, for example, it at first it was how many demos can you get. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you a quota of closed business because there's not gonna be any closed business. But what we really need is we need to get in front of a hundred different potential buyers and just get the feedback. So your job is just to go find people who will listen to the demos. And I'll sit on the demos and the head of product will sit on the demos so we can just listen and hear, and I'll just pay you for the number of demos. Then we'll move you in the next six months to the number of proof of concepts. People who are actually going from demo to saying, huh. I'm interested in seeing how this might actually work and implement for my business. I'll pay you on the number of proof of concepts. And then you go to, okay, now I'm going to pay you on the number of proof of concepts plus the first closed sales. So that if you have, because in enterprise sales, as three said earlier, very wisely, it takes a while to get the program going. You got to find the people, you got to cultivate, you have to build the product, right? Especially in a hardware business like yours. It's not like you snap your fingers and a week later, it's like there's a new rev of the product. It takes a while to build it. You don't want a salesperson to quote unquote starve, meaning sell nothing for that first year and they get totally demoralized and they're not 
doing anything productive and there's bad uh, energy with them coming into the office and they're complaining. And what you want is you want to find a way where they're still pushing the envelope forward. They're experiencing success, but it's also driving an agenda for the company. So for me, it was just getting a whole bunch of feedback loop in, in demos and then proof of concepts and then slowly implementation, whatever that is for you. I think there's a lot of different ways of slicing it beyond just what's your closed sales number. That's really helpful. It really helps to pace things out much better than being like, okay, you just got here, now go and sell something. And if you don't sell something and you know however much time that you didn't do your job, it I think on both ends it allows us to have a little bit more nuance. Um so that's something I'll I'll remember. Now that's not for everyone. You are gonna find salespeople who are like, No, 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 no. What's my quota? What's my number of leads? What's my territory? What's my patch? What's my accounts? Where's the playbook? Where's the that's not the person that you need today. That's probably the person that Therese needs to hire in one of her regions. Um, so for you, you really need someone who's going to be more entrepreneurial and with you um, kind of through that learning process. Great. And now, you know, from your advice as well, I have an idea of what could happen in three years or four years, maybe, you know, what you should actually be doing when you're hiring leadership or hiring um, individuals to go under that leadership and something that's not as related on the sales side, but that I was wondering about was just um, kind of that timeline to feel like it's time to scale up. I mean, I, I think for us, because we spend so much time in product development, I don't know if we're there yet, but I also know that for Therese, it was like 12 years before you took on funding, right? And uh, once you take on that funding, you know it's time to scale up. Like if you're raising a Series A, you got to scale. Um, but at what point did you decide it was time to scale up, Therese, since you were taking a, a different strategy? Well, you know, it's interesting. I did take on outside capital at the end of 2013. But we thought about doing it probably three or four or five times prior to that, starting in around 2006. Now, um, what we ended up finding is that when we would get term sheets, we would um, we didn't like them. Uh, we either didn't like the valuation that they were putting on the company, or we did not like um, the complete lack of control. I mean, you know, it would be like, all right, we basically are, we get complete control over every decision that you make. Or, you know, we found somebody that we loved, but then the company started generating all kinds of cash. So we didn't go with that one. So there were different reasons over the years, but we were exploring outside funding for at least um, six, seven years before we actually took it. I don't think that was a bad thing because we learned about the different kinds of funding that's available, the different types of people. We just felt good about it when we finally did it. And of course, the other added benefit was we ended up retaining a lot of ownership uh, and made a lot more money in the long term by delaying that decision. So it was not a bad long-term decision either. At what point did you say to yourself with Blackline, like, hey, there could be a really big business here? Do you feel like there was a, a moment when you felt like it was just really working? I believed that early on. Um, I am still appalled today that we only have just over 3,000 customers because I think that all accounting departments ought to be using Blackline. 
And so, yeah, I've, I've thought that it's more that markets themselves take time to mature. And back to your scaling question, a market may not be ready no matter how much money you throw at it. And that's, that's just something that you've got to get a sense for. You know, we have a very conservative buyer in accountants. And so it takes a market shift in order to scale sometimes. Absolutely. Freddie, any, any thoughts to share uh, on this with Maddie? Well, we had a very different approach. Um, we knew that to build an enterprise software infrastructure platform that um, was going to help you know, people adopt more cloud computing was going to be something that required financing. So we raised, um, you know, over the course of uh, seven years, I think we did seven rounds of financing that totaled about $230 million, um, you know, from, from some um, very good venture capitalist investors who certainly, for us, was a, it was a huge difference, not only the capital, but also the advice. I mean, the company would not be where it is today without um, the support and guidance and advice and feedback that we got. Um, you know, which wasn't all, it wasn't always, uh, nice, right? Because their job is to help you create shareholder value. It's not about being friends. Um, but certainly we, we got a lot of value, not just in the capital, which obviously was key to, to grow the business. Um, but also in the, the guidance and advice we got from, from some of our board members, um, you know, Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz, who's still on our board and Neil Bushry, uh, from, you know, Workday and Greylock, Pat Grady from Sequoia Capital, I saw, Therese, if I'm not mistaken, you ended up ultimately taking financing from Silver Lake. Is that not right? I did. And, you know, I had such a great experience with private equity. The amount of expertise that they brought, they did, you know, just like Freddie was saying, he'll do interviews for people. They um, helped us network. They did interviews. Um, they essentially were my product and CFO people until I was able to hire, um, I had a tremendous experience and I still have a couple of them on my board. So I had a, just a fabulous experience and not everybody does, but um, it was the best. Couldn't have done it without them. That's great. I can only imagine what the three or five term sheets that you got that you passed on are feeling like today. I know. Uh, I've had a couple of those guys come back to me and say, dang it, we could have done so, we, you know, I don't know what we were thinking and that we yep. gave you such a low offer. <laughs> hindsight. <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? Yep. I have a question about kind of a general hiring thing. This is almost a, a colloquial rule of thumb that you hear about hiring, which is you want to hire slowly and fire fast which I have never been able to do. I'm no good at it. Is that not true or the correct approach when it comes to salespeople? Do you need to not, you know, react immediately and, and hold back your reaction? You know, I like what Freddie articulated so well, which is if you set up interim milestones for people that are achievable, that are not necessarily tied to closed deals, then the excuses wear thin very quickly, right? Is dumb. Don't do that, right? Fire fast because somebody's not performing for an interim goal 
that is very achievable and very reasonable. Yes. I do want to talk about the current situation uh, that we're all experiencing, that we're all dealing with this this crisis that we're in the midst of. Starting a company is always hard. Starting and running a small company in the midst of a complete lockdown, global lockdown, is just a whole nother layer. Maddie, how are you doing? And I would like to hear from Therese and Freddie any thoughts about how to how to navigate a crisis. You know, we're seeing a lot of budgets cut. Typically, our budgets come from an R&D department within the company. And so those budgets get reconsidered when something like this happens. Um, So we're kind of trying to navigate, is it insensitive to do sales right now? Kind of how do we adjust to what's going on, knowing that a lot of the teams that we that we work with or would be talking to are affected. Blackline survived the, the 2008 recession. Therese, what did you take away from that? It was actually interesting because at the end of 2007, we decided to no longer sell on-prem software and be SaaS only. And it was crazy because it was very fortuitous timing because what that did was as the recession hit and capital budgets dried up and people were trying to cut heads, being able to offer them SaaS software, which had much less risk, much lower initial cost and automated to help them, right? Actually worked out very, very well for our company. So I think the thing that we learned is that you've got to sell something that provides real value. That's the key to making it through a downturn. If somebody really finds value in what you've got, then they're going to buy it no matter what the economy looks like. Right. So make sure that you're solving a tangible need that happens regardless of the environment. And then, you know, you'll still have customers. Yep. And I would think about, um, you know, two things in particular. People, why do people buy um, products like uh, like yours, Maddie, or like Teresa's and, and mine? They buy it because they're trying to do usually just one of two things, which is either reduce costs or enhance revenue. And if you can mm-hmm. focus on those two things, of course, in your case, it's largely the second one, how they can come out with new innovative products, because the world's going to get back to purchasing things, right? The, certainly the economy in North America is largely driven by consumer purchasing. It's going to get back to that pretty soon, and people are going to need new products, and they're going to need new ways to transform their businesses. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for you in the times ahead to help organizations do that. There's a third one, Freddie. Mitigate risk. Yeah, I, that's, that's absolutely right. I guess I was thinking about just looking at a balance sheet or an income statement. It's like reducing the cost on the bottom end or increasing the revenue. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mitigating risk, enhancing security. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of them that I think are going to be more and more actually probably line items in the time ahead. You're totally right, Therese. Well, we are at our mark. So I want to thank everybody. I want to thank Therese Tucker for joining us from Blackline and sharing a wealth of insight and, and information. And, and of course, Maddie joining us from Lumia and learning about the advent of e-textiles and navigating sales in a, in a market that doesn't exist, which is something that I think a lot of our listeners uh, are, are grappling with. So thank you to Maddie Maxi at Lumia, the CEO and founder there. And, of course, my co-host, Freddie Carest, as always. Couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate the advice. It's just invaluable. So, you know, I... I'm grateful that we could all be on this podcast today. 
Uh, well, Freddie, that was that was an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed I'm it. I'm curious. I'm curious to know what what was like. What was one of your big takeaways from it? Well, the first one is all about hiring the right person at the right time. I think there are sales uh, professionals that are right when you have a zero or one or two salespeople. You're trying to build that first sales team. Very different profile than that salesperson you want to hire number 25 on the third sales team you have geographically internationally. There was something that you said that was a major takeaway for me from the conversation, which is the idea of hiring in threes and feeding that competitive energy, but also trying to understand which sales style is going to work best for the company and also understanding your product. Because if you only have one salesperson, then you don't know if it's the salesperson or the product. Yeah. Uh, well, along with uh, those, those three people on the competition, I think another thing that really drives salespeople, obviously, is incentives. So I think my third takeaway is the importance of modulating your incentive structure, depending, again, on where you are, stage of, of company. If it's early on, you might want the incentives to be very clear. What you're trying to do is drive proof of concepts or demos. You might need to be higher base, lower variable. But later on, you really want that aggressive variable compensation plan that the account executives can really blow out and make a lot of money on. Well, all in all, just a really great conversation, great insights, uh, great stories, and, and great people. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Zero to IPO. Please tune in on Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Looking forward to it. Thank you.